Okay. Yes? Okay, so we're in Sefer Daniel, we're in Perek Zain. Perek Zain, right? Yes. Okay. So, Bishnat Chada, in the uh, first year, the Belshatar Melech Babel, Daniel Chilem Chaza. So we're going back now. Now we're going a little bit back, yeah. So Daniel saw a vision. Now, incidentally, in Tanakh, we only read about three representatives, really, of the... We read about three kings in the book of Daniel. We read about... Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and uh, Koresh. But there, was act- there were actually other kings in between. They just don't have any. There's no stories in Daniel with them, like Evil Merodach. And actually, there was another one in there. Um, in any case, um, the Chesvei. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, there we have It mentions Koresh, but it doesn't have anything to do with it, right? True. The Chesvei Reshei al Mishkevei. And the visions of his head on his bed. Beidayin Chelmach Hitav, Resh Milinamar. So uh, when he had the, um, the dream, so he wrote down uh, the beginning of the words, okay? Um, what does he say in the Ralbat? Okay. So the, the point is that some, one way of interpreting it would be that uh, he wrote Rish Milim, means he wrote like a summary. He didn't write everything, or it could just mean he wrote from the beginning. Meaning he's giving us what he saw in the dream. Ani Daniel, Bemar Daniel said, In my vision in the night, I saw a. Uh, I think he just learned from his father's mistakes. What? He, he learned from his father's mistakes to remember a dream. Yeah, exactly. No, this is <laughs> Daniel. It's not, it's not, it's Daniel. Oh, it's Daniel. Yeah, it's himself. Oh, I so, yeah, so the, the big, up. right? The big. It's just telling you when. Yeah, the big, the big um, transition that happens, and it's literally right in the middle of the book, is that everything up till now is Daniel interpreting or, or serving somebody else, and here we're hearing his own visions. Okay, so it says Ane Daniel Damar Chazei I was looking bechezvi imlilia. In my vision of the night, Va'aru Albar Shemaya Megichan and he said that the uh, the uh, uh, there were four winds coming from the Va'aru Arba Shemaya. Four winds were coming from the sea, right? Why are four winds of heaven? Or to the Great Sea, stirring up the Great Sea. Right, was stirring. Right, was pushing on the Great Sea. Right. Right, so the four winds are pushing against the Great Sea. Varba Chevan Ravrivan, and there were four big animals. Salkan Minyama, they were coming up from the ocean. Shanyan Da Minda, each one was different from the other. Like Shone. Kadmaita Ka'ariye, the first one was like a lion. Begapin Dimisharla, and it had like. Uh, 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 wings like a vulture, really. We usually say Nesher means an eagle, but I think it's supposed griffin to be a vulture. griffin vulture, right? That's what they say, right? Chazei havet adim. It like huge wings. Yeah, it had very big... It has the biggest wings. Right, it's a lion with the usual wings that lions have. And adi meritu gapai unetilat minara. Did he say these Well, it's saying that he's saying them, but he doesn't say to whom. Hey, he's writing down or declaring what his dreams were. Presumably, he wrote down his prophecies or his yeah, dreams. Just driving, I just drove me on his moped. <laughs> right. So, so, so uh, 
so whatever he yeah, recorded, they were they worked with that material to organize it into Sefer Daniel. The official Sefer Daniel was put from, by the uh, put out by the Anshul Gedolah. No. Yeah, because Daniel is but still, they would have put them together in the end, you know. So they they edited. Wasn't Daniel on that? No. Uh, I guess he, he could have been around the period of time. It's not so clear when the Anshek Nesagolah was because uh, was Ezra the Anshek Nesagolah? That's much later. That's much later. So then, if he was the beginning of it, then definitely not. No, no, Chagai and Malachi and Zechariah were on it, and they were later. So if Daniel lived to be very, very old, it could have been on it, but it would have, it have to have been super old. Uh, okay, so then uh, the uh, these wings were plucked off of it, and it was the what? The wings were plucked off of it. There's been a lot of fours so far, right? Four wings. Four wings. Four, yeah. It didn't say four wings, did it? Four, yeah. wings. four wings. Four winds. Oh, yeah, four winds. And there's yeah. four animals. Right, the number four we have. Yeah. And? The you see four wings? Winds. It says uh, our back. Four different winds. They're coming from different directions. You saw, like, I don't know, air. So it's a line of eagle's wings. Yeah. No, no, he's saying, how do you see wind? Yeah. No, you see, like, the see tree the moving this way and then tree moving that way. How can you tell? How can you tell it's bound? It's a good question. Uh, okay, so basically the um, so the we see the wings get plucked off, and it's pulled off the ground. Untilat minara va'al raglayin ke'enash. Hakimat and it was stood up on its uh, on its feet like a person. Ulvav enashihibla and it was given the heart of a person. Va'aruchev what? Meaning it has a mind like a person. This this lion. Okay. Va'aruchevva achoritin yana dam yeledov and then a second animal, which was similar to a bear. Ve'listal chad hakimat and it was propped up on one side. What exactly that means is not clear. Whether it means a bodily deformity or it was. Propped up, propped up. And it had three ribs in its mouth. It just had, it had barbecue for uh, dinner. Right? And this is what they were saying to it in the dream. Get up and eat a lot of meat. That's the bear. And at the same place I was watching, there was a leopard looking uh, 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 animal. And it had four wings like a bird on its back, and it had four heads, and it had power. It was given dominion. It was given power. Right. In the same place I was looking, and I saw in the vision of the night, and then I saw a fourth beast, very frightening, and it was frightening and strong. It was like extra strong. It had huge iron teeth. It would eat and crush. And whatever was left, it would like trample with its feet. 
it was different than all of the other animals before it. It had ten horns on its head. And I was looking at these horns. There was one little horn that plucked up. Three horns that had, remember it had ten horns. So three of them were knocked out by this one horn that came up. This little horn that displaced the three horns had eyes, like a person. It had a mouth that was saying big stuff. It was a big talker. Everyone's enjoying it so far? This is amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Like a movie. Now, this is a good bedtime story. You want to scare your kids? You know? Chazehavet, I was looking. Gonna get, is he gonna get He's going to explain it. Point of this thing? Mm-hmm. Kind of. And I was watching, and the chair, the thrones were put down. And the Ancient of Days was sitting. He's talking about Hashem. His clothes were like a white snow. And his Clothing was like a white wool. His, uh, sorry, his hair was like clean wool. There were, his throne was beams of like fire, waves of fire, whatever it is. And the wheels of the, of the throne, I don't know, I guess there are wheels on the throne, right? Are uh, uh, flaming fire. Yeah. Now, how do you know? The, I don't know, you're going to explain that to be said. Mm-hmm. You said that this is Hashem? Yeah, everyone assumes that the Etik Yomim is Hashem. Okay. So then, the then, then he's ascribing some kind of imagery to Hashem? In the dream, yeah. Just like Yishayah also says he saw Hashem sitting on a Kisei Ram Benizah. Right. Yeah. So the imagery of Hashem is... Is the old man in the sky. The one that we're not supposed to think about. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He never actually says it's Hashem, but that's just the assumption of all of our Nehar um, Dinur, a river of fire, Naged Benafik Min Kodamai, was like coming out from before him. Wait, it, the with ten horns is a show? No. The no, beast with ten down. horns and then had that one was, horn that displaced that three. That was the fourth beast. Now we're not on beast anymore. Now we're on throne. This throne that it's on. The about. old guy. The throne? Oh. The ancient one, the ancient one. Oh, okay. Right? Uh, yeah. Um, that's like, um, I, hope I think that's like what Einstein used to call God, like the ancient one or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the there. old one or something like that. Anyway, Elef Alfin Yisham Shunei, thousands upon thousands were uh, serving him. And tens of thousands and tens of thousands were standing before him. The judgment was given, which is from like, um, uh, from the Tefillah of Rosh Hashanah, from Hashem Shemadi Shemach Yoreti. Right, so, um, What's the relation to there's some kind of judgment going on of, the, of these beasts. Oh, he's judging the beasts. Yeah. He's not judging the report. No, those are his attendants. Oh. Yeah. Chazei was watching. Bedayim min kal milaya rav rebata dikarna mimalila. From the voice of the uh, uh, of the 
big words, right? The, the, arrogant. the arrogant words, yeah, the showing off words of the speaking horn. I saw that it was, uh, that beast was killed and its body was destroyed. was thrown into the fiery fire, right? Into the, uh, into the flames. All the other animals, they lost their power also. Um, and uh, length of, of life was given to them until a time and a period. Well, right? that, it sounds like Rambam's uh, thing, how the deal is told that. Right? Between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. How about the judgment? Yeah, it says it says Hashem, Hashem like waits or something. Hashem is told out the judgment until a later date. But they were so they, their power was taken away, but they weren't destroyed yet. I mean, there was something staying around of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, and uh, with the clouds of the heavens came this human figure, right? This Bar Enash came. He came up to the old, the ancient one, this godlike figure, and they brought him before him. And to him was given power and honor and kingship. And all nations and peoples and tongues, they all served him. His power was an internal power that would never be removed. And a kingship that would never be uh, uh, would never be uh, in any way damaged. Okay, so this is a weird dream, obviously. Yeah. And he's going to want to know what it means. Okay, and now basically he's going to hear an explanation of the dream, which may or may not satisfy you. As to uh, you know, but then we'll go and we'll try to understand. Part of the thing is we have to read through them when it comes to the dreams. We got to read through them and we got to try to then read the interpretation and see what the significance is. Because I think, in addition to understanding what is, the signif- what is the meaning of the dream, why is he being told this? Why is it important that Daniel know this? Mm-hmm. What's the relevance of it? My spirit was disturbed in, within my body. And the um, visions of my head shook me up, basically. So I approached one that was standing there. And I asked him for truth about all this. Meaning he approached one of the angels in the vision. And he said, tell me what this, go, go, what did I just see? Three beasts, the fourth beast. Fourth beast get judged. It gets destroyed. Three beasts are still hanging around. What's the, what is this? The fourth beast has ten horns. And one comes out. Yeah, Starts talking smack and everyone else. Yeah. It's, it might make for an interesting, it's very psychedelic. And weird. And then gets judged, and then gets killed, and then thrown into fiery furnaces. Right. Okay. <laughs> You're not impressed. I mean, I would love to. It's a weird know, dream. Know your thoughts. It would be funny if we all went to sleep and dreamt something like this. Uh-huh. It's going to be in our heads right before bed. Elen chevata This arrogant big shot. Uh, oh no! They, no, it's talking about all of them. These big animals, big big beasts. The Inin Arba that are four, Arba Malachin Ikumun Arba, they're going to be four kingdoms that come up. The Kabalun Malchuta, they're going to receive um, uh, uh, the, 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 their Malchut will be received by Kadisha Elyonin, by the holy elevated ones, by the holy ones. The Yachsinun Malchuta Adalma, 
and their, um, their kingdom will be strong forever, until forever and ever. He said, then I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to, okay, that's the, that's the, all the other beasts. But what about the fourth weird one? Right? That was different from all the other ones. The chilayat yod was especially scary. It had teeth of iron and fingernails of bronze. Achla madka, what it ate, as it ate, it crushed things. And everything else it trampled with its feet. What? The ten horns that had in its head, and the one that came out, and three fell out behind it, and that little one that came out had eyes, and a mouth that said arrogant stuff, and it's, it was more um, noticeable than, it's, uh, than the others. I was watching, that horn, the little horn, fought with the holy ones. And it beat them. The little horn beat all the angels. The angels and other horns. No, the Im Kadishim. Until the ancient one came, and he established judgment, and he righted the wrong, and he put them back in charge. He put the, 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 the holy ones back in charge. And the time came, and the kingship was, uh, and, and the holy ones had the strength of the uh, power again. So this is what he said, meaning the angel explains. Now notice Daniel added more details about the small horn beating the angels and about the small horn uh, uh, that it had... Um, that, it, that the beast had like uh, fingernails of brass, which didn't say for there were a few det- details added. In any case, he said, This one, it's going to uh, basically uh, plow and crush everything in the world. The ten horns are. The kingdoms that are going to come from it. Then after the ten will be another one, a last one. He's going to knock down three kings. He will say things against the Most High. And he will be able to defeat the Holy Ones. He will try to change times and religion. Until a time and times and half a time. The, everyone gets this. Obviously, what this means. I mean, I don't understand why. Very clear. Very clear. And the judgment will be given. And his power will be taken away. will be totally destroyed. Then kingdom and power and greatness. Then it will be given to the nation, which is of the holy, exalted ones. It's an eternal kingdom. To them will, to to the nation, the holy nation, all the other nations will serve and listen to them. Ad ka sofad This is the end of it. Ana Daniel My thoughts really still bothered me. Vezivai ishtanon alai, and my face changed. Meaning I was distraught. Umiruta and I kept it in my heart. I, I, I guarded in my heart. So, so uh, what is this about? Who knows? 
Right. You must know. know what the basic interpretation is of this vision, right? Like the Abagalia and things like that. That's what you think it's about? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'll be here to listen. Um, who defeated Baal? Who defeated Who defeated Baal? Well, the first king is the first king that was definitely Baal. 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 Because yeah, the lion is always associated with 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 Nebuchadnezzar for sure. That's that's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, the question is to what just like we said about the earlier Nibi, uh, Nibi dreams, what is the time period that it's referring to? Okay, and what is really describing that's going to happen? And most of the modern commentaries take an interpretation of this and of the next parak and of also the last. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic vision of Daniel that is rather than extending to the actual end of days meaning till now really just extends to the end of the second bite to the second bit of Mikdash and how would it fit? it fits actually really well because you have the king the first king Nebuchadnezzar who's taken down by the Persians that's the bear the bear is the Persians mm-hmm. right? Okay. and we and the third beast that is, um, where, where is it? Third beast is a leopard that had uh, four sets of wings. Right, so the, that was what, so the, right, that was the, the Greeks get rid of the Persians, and... Wait, wait, but why are you so, so sure about the, the image? What about the images? Well, the, the reason why it makes the most sense is because pretty much everybody... As we're going to see in the next, uh, in the next Nebuah, that the horns are associated with Greece. So, w- the, what... Okay, you're saying the next Nebuah also has to do with this Nebuah? Mm-hmm. You're going you'll see you're that... Not them as individual. They are individual, but they focus on different things. So, the most likely interpretation of the little horn, according to most of, like, the modern interpretations of it that read it from the lens of history and assume that it was really referring to the end of Baichini, and not far beyond that, is that the beasts that, um, that really the first beast is, um, is, Babylon, is Babylon, second beast is, um, is the third beast is, I think, is actually Madai, not, because it doesn't destroy the second beast, right? It doesn't destroy the second beast. The second beast destroyed the first beast. Then you had the second and the third beast together, and the fourth beast is actually Greece. And the horns that come out are, if you look at it from Alexander the Great, there was a long period after, uh, from the beginning of Alexander the Great's empire, of fighting back and forth over who was going to be the successor of Alexander the Great. And the Greek, uh, there, were, there were wars between the northern successors of Alexander the Great who were like in the area of Syria, like the Syrian Greeks. And the descendants of Alexander the Great, or the successors of Alexander the Great that were in Egypt. This was like ongoing wars back and forth and all this intrigue until finally one of the biggest four figures that comes out of Greece is Antiochus, actually. And so most of the He's modern the commentators say that Antiochus is the little one because he really wasn't a very impressive figure in and of itself, but he made very, you know, he had a huge impact on the entire region. And it makes sense why it says that he defeated the Kadisha Elion. He just, well, first of all, he defeated those who were trying to edge him out from power. 
And if you read the history of Antiochus, like, it fits it a little bit too well, actually. Like, it fits it very well. Um, and the fact that he was against, it says he was going to fight against religion for a period, two periods, and a half. And the period of time that his decrees on the second Beit HaMikdash were three and a half years. So they say a period, two periods, and a period, and, and a half a period is three and a half years. So which beast is... is so Greece would be the last beast. Because Greece started with Alexander the Great, which was like a very mighty empire. As soon as Alexander the Great died, it split into factions, and they were fighting with each other for generations. And essentially the power concentrated in the north in, the Sir- in Syria and in Egypt. And there were constant wars between the two. Ptolemy. Yeah, the Tol- the whole, all the Ptolemies is like a lot of them. And uh, there was more than one Antiochus actually. And all of these, uh, the Seleucid, uh, uh, yeah, the, the people in the, in the north. Macedonians. Which really we think of the Syrian Greeks because that's Antiochus was, right? The people who were... What made them so different? They were, in the beginning, they were fighting. Oh, because the, 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 Greek, the Greek Empire was obviously more impressive and massive. And, yeah, it was bigger and stronger and crushed everyone. But that was really only during the time of Alexander the Great. As soon as Alexander the Great was gone, the kingdom was like broke into like all of these other minor fiefdoms, basically, small kingdoms. And then you had Antiochus who really rose up and was a very um, impactful person specifically <coughs> against, the, against religion. And that's why um, the, the Kaddishin or whatever that he defeats, the presumption is that those Kaddishin that he defeats are the Kohanim and the, the, Jew, the religious Jews. And that when it says that the Kaddishin Elyon received back the kingdom, it's talking about the Hashmonites. Okay? So the so if that's the case, then what he's really hearing about is he's hearing about the uh, what is going to unfold, right? What's going to be happening over the next several hundred years? Uh, not not in his immediate future. But what's going to happen between where he is now? Yeah, it's basically almost five hundred years later, less, but I mean, let's say four hundred something years later from where he's standing right now. I know he said it doesn't matter. But isn't it obvious that Daniel's going to be? Well, we had a... The war is always open to interpretation. Yeah. And if I would be if Daniel was was not seeing such very specific things. Actually, the fact that it's so, so specific is less Nebuah-like. If you look at the Nebuot of Yishayahu, of the Nebuim that we think of that are in Navi as opposed to Tuvim, they're not specific and detailed and like, like this. They're much more so broad. Like it has scales vision. Hmm? So Which one? The vision of all the Merkava vision. Yeah, the Merkava vision is like a metaphysical vision about how God runs the world. It's not really about details of human history. The level of detail, especially in the, even this is nothing compared to what he gets into in the later chapters right. in terms of the detail. And when you take those details, when you look at the details in like the. Uh, in the last Nebuah that he has that talks about the north and the south and all that, it, it literally fits perfectly with the whole back and forth between the north and south uh, after the, in the aftermath of, of Alexander the Great. Right. So I, what I was going to do was I was going to suggest if you just take a look at the Syrian wars during the Hellenistic period you, and then you match it with what he talks about in the later Nebuah, it's like literally, you can just look up the Wikipedia article basically. You'll see, literally, this is the history. 
uh, that he's describing. You know, obviously, he's describing it hundreds of years in advance of when it happened. And he doesn't name names, but the descriptions are so close to the events in terms of accuracy that it's like hard to not see that that's what it's talking about. Some of the traditional commentaries already thought that, that that was what it was talking about, talking about the Greeks. A lot of them tried to say, no, the later beast or the later redemption is talking about the final redemption and really it's talking about Really, it's talking about, you know, uh, Rome or Islamic Empire, some of them say, or, the, you know, the uh, Holy Roman Empire. But the reality is that in general, Nivuot seem to work more, even Nivuot of, let's say, Yishayahu. He's really talking about his own period of time. Right? He's talking about, like, uh, what Chizkiyahu is going to do. You know, he's really talking about the, the, the messianic potential of his own generation, or shortly, you know, a little bit in the future. And, and when once Chizkiyahu fails as the potential Mashiach, right, so then all of a sudden, he, his nivuot become about Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, because, you know, there will be other opportunities, because history is cyclical and presents many opportunities. The idea being that through all of this tumultuous political stuff, the truth will have an opportunity to rise up and to assert itself and prevail. So if the, the Chashmonaim obviously ended up being a disaster in the end, but they had the potential to be tremendous. They had the tr- potential to restore the honor of God and the kingship of God to the world. So he sees it since he's seeing it. See, if that had been written after the fact, then it probably would have mentioned that, oh, and then, you know, they could have added the part about how there was a downfall and, and, and everything fell apart after. But part of the, what rings true about it being a dream that happened before, before the events, is that he views the Chashmonaim gaining the upper hand as the thing to celebrate. Actually, it very much connects to Hanukkah, because we also do. When we celebrate Hanukkah, we don't think about what happened to Hashemonim afterwards. But if his prophecy is really talking about the Seleucid dynasty, the Ptolemaic dynasty, and the whole fight between them, although he didn't get into that part yet, he's more going to get into that later in the book. But if it's talking about Antiochus, let's say, and that's the person who's trying to uproot religion and fighting against the Kadishay Elyon, and the Hashmonaim are the ones who are the Kadishay Elyon that end up receiving the kingdom, and they had an eternal kingdom. The implication is it could have been an eternal kingdom, and then really the Beit HaMikdash Hashini could have been the final Beit HaMikdash. And they could have, I guess, refashioned it in, into the Beit HaMikdash of Yechizkel. There was a potential there for that. And, that's, and, and the Rambam even sort of suggests that, because he says, oh, the miracle of Hanukkah at the end, they established a Malchut, and they existed as an independent Malchut for 200 years. Right? right, meaning that was a that was an achievement that was seen as an achievement. So that's what Daniel is seeing. So right now Daniel's in the galut. He's been working for these kings for the past for his whole life, and he's like, when is this going to end? And the truth will have the upper hand. Instead of me having to work through this corrupt system to try to bring about the light of truth to shine through the cracks of a corrupt system, when is it going to be that there's a relief from this? And basically, Hashem is telling him the way it happens is through the natural fighting and competition and egos of these various parties, things get worse before they get better. But after, when, when they really hit rock bottom, there's an opportunity for truth to, to, uh, uh, to be revealed. But at that point, you have to seize the opportunity. And the Hashem did, but then they didn't. And they lost it. Just like Chizkiyahu had the opportunity to be Mashiach. And uh, when he had his own salvation, and instead of utilizing it, he also failed. And Yeshayahu was predicting him that he was going to be the Mashiach. 
That everybody pretty much agrees that that was what the prediction of Yeshua originally was. Okay. And then when he failed, okay, it became a prediction for the future that there'll be another situation like this where things will hit rock bottom and we'll be able to have a king emerge that will be like a messianic okay. figure and we'll restore everything. So I see the nivuot of or dreams of Daniel as not being necessarily um, so important to Daniel because of the details of which kingdom and all that. Why is all this stuff being described? And especially later when he gets into like literally the historic detail of the, you know, the, the Ptolemaic and Seleucid back and forth, the north and the south, and one is marrying one and the other one is marrying. All, all of this royal intrigue, why is it important to Daniel? It's important to him to see that basically from the instability and the broken alliances and the corruption and the infighting, there will, there, that actually pre- presents an opportunity. Right, the crisis, the international crisis and collapse of these kingdoms presents an opportunity for the truth to rise up. So don't feel like you're going to be eternally, because you know, when you're in a system, you feel like it's eternally going to be like that. You're in the United States of America. You don't feel like that system is going to implode. Well, maybe you're starting to feel like it is, but normally people don't feel that way. They feel that it's going to be there forever. They can't really imagine it not being. Right? But so he's trapped already. He, this is already generations in. He's actually been in the, in the administration for three kings by the time he has this prophet, this prophecy. He's already been no, there. This is two. Right, no, because, right, but there was one, we know there was one in between, right? So really, actually, technically, he's been there for three. And it seems like it's going to be forever. Like, is this, is this ever going to end? Are we ever going to get out of this galut? It's been a long time. So Hashem is trying to show him, but what the characteristic of Daniel that makes it feel so different from other nivuot is actually the messiness of it. Not just that it's an Aramaic and hard to read, but the fact that it is in a way very particular. It's actually very specific. It's not as broad and like these inspiring flowery visions. It's a very, very, almost like, just highly specific and highly particular description of what's gonna occur. But I think that's what—that's the whole point. That from that, since Daniel is not a navi, instead of envisioning the the big picture and having sort of like some kind of a grandiose vision that then we have to translate down into specifics, he has a very highly specific and graphic vision that's really corresponding to very very specific events or very specific personalities or going to very specific things. But that are going to happen within the next few hundred years and present an opportunity for Gula that isn't, that isn't uh, realized, which is so much the theme of so many Nebuot and Tanakh. Okay? So that's, that's the... He's still troubled by it. Why is he troubled by it in the end after he understands that? Perhaps because he sees what a tumultuous... How it's not going to be so simple that, you know, there's this idea that there's going to be a redemption, but it's not going to be so simple. It's going to be this messy, complicated, bloody struggle before there's really an opportunity for uh, things to go the way that he would have liked them to go. In a way, he's in a better position than he could have been because he could have been living during that time instead of living during the time that was a relatively, relatively stable. So this is his nivua or whatever the dream is that about Belshazzar, during Belshazzar's reign. And then later on, or just maybe a few years after this, he, he brings down Belshazzar in many ways, right? He predicts the writing on the wall, right. and because of that, someone kills him. Right. Maybe, maybe because of the Maybe because they saw that he was, he that they deserved it, yeah, and it coming. Either that, or that he's vulnerable, or whatever it is. Right. He, he 
crap themselves right. with nervous, the shaking nerves, and everybody's body is nervous. And so is it that this vision of Daniel is indicating to Daniel that he should do something to manipulate what's going to happen going forward, like in politics? Like he should, uh, he should bring the downcoming of Bashar time? It doesn't, I don't see that here because it seems like it's so far off what he's seeing. He's seeing like multiple kingdoms away, not even within the current kingdom. I feel like it comes more from a feeling of the endlessness of the, and you see he says, you know, like in his tefillot later, he's praying to God, like how long are we going to be stuck in this endless galut and what, you know, we've sinned and we're, we're paying such a steep price. There's no, it seems like there's no way out of it. And I think that, you know, it's not that far back in our own experience. We all were born into a, a world that had an Israel. Right. So we kind of like a little bit living a charmed life. And even, even to be down the people who were born before there was a Rova Yehudi, when they come to even the Kotel, it's, you know, the fact that it, we're able to access it is not a small thing. If you go back 100 years or 150 years, most Jews would have felt like it's never going to happen. We're locked in an eternal, you know, an eternal kind of a stuck in the mud eternally. These, these different empires that are rising up are preventing us from access to the Holy Land and it's just never going to happen. But the, t- the tumult basically of World War I and World War II and, you know, in no small way, you know, kind of opened the door to something like the state of Israel emerging. So that's exactly what Daniel is seeing just in the context of Bayit Shini, that the tug of war between all of these different powers, especially, uh, especially one who goes to an extreme, such as Antiochus is depicted at the end, is going to an extreme and trying to totally destroy and annihilate the Jewish people, that ends up, you know, opening up, actually backfiring on him, going to the opposite. And that's exactly what happened in the 20th century with uh, the Holocaust leading to Midian Israel. So it's definitely a cycle of history. If you, if you look at Daniel, I think the way to read Daniel as a Ruach HaKodesh prophet instead of a Navi prophet is to read that what he was seeing was in his local context, relatively. In the relatively... Right. In the, right. So therefore it's relevant to now. Because you see that these patterns, like unrest and instability, provides opportunity for significant change. Now that can be bad, because unrest and instability can, can uh, provide the opportunity for an Iranian revolution, you know, and, and, and for bad things, for a different kind of tyranny to take over. But it can also open up the door for goodness. And so the, uh, what? Anytime there's big, like, Disruption. big yeah. things happening in the world, And that's really what he's seeing. So, so the fact that you know he's in Belshazzar already, period, and thinking that this is going to be an endless reign of Babel and there's never going to be an end to it. Mm-hmm. It's already continued to three kings, and he was only in the first year of Belshazzar, so he didn't know how it was going to end. Right? right? It seems like it's going to go on forever. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was this happened in Chada. There was a Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman. Well, then there's the other empires after that. There was the Holy Roman Empire. Why is he mentioned? Then there was the, the Roman the last one? Well, in, 
according to the most of the modern scholars, they read it as going only to the Greek Empire because that was up, up to the Hashemonaim. Most of the modern readers of Daniel, especially because of the Nebuot where he describes the north and the south and everything that just fits too perfectly with like the Greek, the, the, basically the Syrian wars that happened during that period, during the Hellenistic period, post Alexander the Great, it just fits too well that it could be accidental. What, what is the room? Right? No, Greek. You have, he only see, according to this reading, he only reaches to the Greek. He has like, because there's Paras and Madai. There's two that, two animals, the two that don't fight with each other. Paras and Madai, because they actually partnered with each other. It, it was like the, 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 the emperor of, the empire of Madai for a long time, they were saying that, oh, it wasn't real, you know, like the archaeologists and everything were saying there's no evidence for it. And then later, of course, they found evidence for it. Because they always assumed that anything they didn't find doesn't exist. Even though it's in the Tanakh until they find it. So, uh, so what are the four empires? In this, according to this reading, it's not the only reading because there are some people who try to read it as talking about Rome and say, "Oh, it's that uh, that the, it, that it's talking about the you know the last person is uh, uh, I don't know uh, Titus or somebody from the Roman uh, from the Roman times that destroyed the second Beit Hamikdash." And, and maybe the uh, the uh, some of the Farshim will say, "No, it's, it's talking about something that hasn't even happened yet." But, it, but according to this reading, which fits well with the flow of the book, as you'll see going forward, and then it, it ends up being uh, Babylon, Babylonian Empire, Persian, Median, and then Greek. The Greek being the one that like took over the world, basically, because Alexander the Great like took everything. He was like the most successful, that's why that powerful. Piece, that piece that's why it's the scariest one. It has iron teeth, and it crushes everything. It makes perfect sense that it would be the, the empire of Alexander the Great because that's really what he did. Even though he was, it was like the most short-lived emperor. He died so young. 82. Yeah, he's so young. Barely, uh, imagine what he could have done. I mean, I don't know if that's good. Yeah. It's, it, but he, he, was, he really accomplished a lot and I think even today he's considered like one of the most successful military. He's still the most? Yeah, no one else can Even better more, than Trump? More of the known world than he did. Um, yeah, that, we have to be realistic. So, uh, so okay. yeah, it, it fits nicely with this. Now, uh, what's the next part? Let's keep going. And again, I'm giving you one reading, a reading that I think just makes the most sense and it's easiest. Because there's so many different ones. If you read the Mepharshim, Ibn Ezra has one, Abar Ben has another one, another one. So confusing. That's why I'm just trying to give a reading that I think is smooth. For a first reading. Correct. Right, accurate. Accurate and smooth that doesn't get overwhelming. Because it's a very overwhelming book. Wait, so we'll do one more parak and that's it? Let's try one more parak, right? Are we recording, by the way? Yes, it's recording. Oh, it is? Okay. Unless somebody paused. I hope not. No, no, nobody touched it. I would have cut off their hand. Okay. We're good. Uh, okay. This is Shnat Shalosh. What year did he get killed? In the third, right? Wasn't that one? Is the, what was the writing on the wall? I think it was longer. It was just... Uh, Daniel didn't come in later. When did, did Belshazzar have the party? Was the third also? Did you see that? How long he was king. He so that was the writing on the wall was in the third year? Third year. Okay. So, 
a vision was seen to me after the one that I saw at first, which implies that there's a connection between the two. Because why is he mentioning it was after the one he saw at first? It's two years later. Yeah. Right? But he's, he's implying that it's related. Okay. Right? Based on that. That's why it's a, it's a very strong reading. And now he goes back to Hebrew, which is Tabach Shemo. We actually know. <laughs> how does... How does I'm sometimes surprised I'm able to read the Aramaic, but I guess the Maran and all that teaches you like some of the stuff. Or the, I don't know. It was, it, was, it was pretty... Once in a while, I had to look at the... Ralbag to help me, but it's you know if you, it's the good thing is that there's a finite number of prakim and Tanakh that are written in Aramaic, so if you just know those, you'll be okay. You don't have to know that much Aramaic, but they give courses on like Aramaic grammar, and you can actually learn it as a language if you really want. Oh, I never did. I'm not. I'm not saying, but I have like a textbook never took the course, but you finished like four books on the. I have a textbook on it called Biblical Aramaic. I just read that a few times. I didn't. Really he never took the course. He I, gave the I, course. I, I know. I, I figured it out. <laughs> from, most of what I was able to figure out was based on what either from Targum Munkulos or from, from Gemara language. Like most of it. <laughs> so simple. Um, I'm confused. We have dreams every night. All of us, right? Never What's the difference between this and a dream? Because you, your, your dreams don't usually tell about the future. How do I know? I don't know, maybe that. Maybe you're a Navi? How, like, what made him wake up and say, so it's, so he's been having dreams for it's a good. Years. It's a good meta question. I think we talked about it a little bit in one of the other shiurim. Like, I don't know if there's a 100% clear answer to it, but I think that a person who's seeking knowledge of Hashem and understanding yeah. Hashem, and his mind is really trained on that, and gets a dream this vivid, has some kind of a sense that it has a deeper meaning. But if somebody came and said that today, we would laugh at that. Not necessarily. I, when I lived in Great Neck, every okay. single week I had somebody come to me and tell me that they had a dream that they were about something. I think that dreams are a little understood. And I think that sometimes... But if somebody dreams, came and said, I saw a dream about this and that, and I think it means this, like, today we would laugh at that. Most dreams are just a, a product of your psyche, and they don't have a deeper meaning. But there are... So other than about yourself. Know? How does Daniel other know? Other than about yourself. This part of the chokhmah that he had—that's what it's saying. He's a chacham. Part of the chokhmah that he had was to be able to identify which elements of a dream are psychological and which elements of a dream really are, are shown. It's to not a matter deeper. of a different era or, a different, no. or the fact that he's in, could be a navi or something like that. He's not. He's he's not called a navi, but he's called like someone with ruach So he's able to identify when a dream is purely a product of his psyche, which was ninety-nine percent of the time when he dreamt, yeah. and when it was something that really indicated more than that. And it also, he, he's gonna, you're going to see later in the book, he spent a lot of time studying and thinking about these subjects, which is a sign that his mind is on them and that he's readying his mind for some kind of an insight into it, which is one of the things that we talked about when we talked about dreams really affects where your mind is, what you dream about. They're, they're connected. But let's see what he says next. I just have that question with, with Levine, like Yom Yom, and he's like trying to like, reach out to the people. And, like, you're probably the, just thinking he's crazy. Be on the streets, like calling out. like Yeah. I, I There's that guy in front of Penn Station. He's always yeah. screaming out all kinds of stuff. I understand people thinking that he's crazy. Besides with the, the, the sign. Yeah. The, the, magic the end of days guy, whatever. The, oh, oh, and then there's the, the bank show. guy. The guy who says something about the banks or something. There's another guy. There's a little of everyone. New York City is falling. Wow. Is that what he says? I'm saying imagine, like, I understand why people thought he was crazy. Like imagine somebody came to me and said, Oh, I have a vision. New York City is getting destroyed. Everybody's going to leave the city. Yeah, well, the Rambam says, though, he says, uh, 
He says, don't believe a, a nevoah unless the person giving it is somebody who actually seemed already, like they were holich, but they're a nevoah. Right, there's, there's somebody who's like a tamil chacham, a person that you really believe is on the level that they could have such a vision, not just some stam guy who comes and tells you he has a vision. So he's giving, uh, is giving the template for how to start a cult or... <laughs> first, you have first, to establish yourself. Then, <laughs> yeah, first become a tamid chacham. Then first tell everyone you got to water. Prove that you're. <laughs> I, because he probably assumed that anybody who would re- reach such a high level of knowledge of Torah would abandon any desire to be a cult leader and would only want to seek the truth because it would see the beauty of the truth and the chokhmah of the Torah so much. He would forget about that. That's probably what he thought. Probably. And he's probably. This friends. is why this world is so hard. I once had a guy come to me, this is true, this this guy who was like from some African country, I'm not sure what, came in my office, and I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure you've encountered people that are like a little bit psychotic, like they're not, you know, (laughs) like you can kind of, just a little bit, uh, you can kind of tell right away there's something off about them, right? So this person came into my office and I could just tell right away there's something off about them. And he had come to proclaim to me that he was the Mashiach. Wow. That he was going, he and his family were going to be appointed by, as priests to serve in the temple that they were going to build in Nigeria. or so. I don't, I don't remember where it was. Cool. And he wanted to proclaim this to all the Jewish community that should follow him. And he had written a book of prophecies. It was like this thick of the different... Is there a Western Nigeria. wall in Nigeria and, also? And he, no? said, and he said that... He said all these, in, these coincidences happened in his life that showed him that God had a plan for him and all that. And I, I listened, and, and apparently he had sent letters to like other rabbis and other, to proclaim his messianic status. And one, day, and, and one day he like showed up in our synagogue and you know, we would let anybody come in to pray, it didn't matter. And he started like prostrating on the ground and doing all kinds of strange stuff. So he gave me his book of prophecies, which regrettably, like, I actually regret it. I flipped through it. So I don't think I read the whole thing. I doubt I read the whole thing. It was written in English? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was written in a poor English. It was written in an English of a, it was written in English, in the English of a person who, we guys were recording, so I don't want to, I think we're recording actually, I'm not sure. Oh, it's this one. Oh yeah, we are. Um, it, it was written in, a, in an English of a, of a foreigner, meaning it wasn't, it wasn't smooth. The one or two pages that were written in a really good English, you could tell somebody did for him, you know, somebody did for him. So like, so I, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read some of it, like, because it, it was just interesting. I ended up discarding it when I was cleaning out my office, which afterwards I was kind of, it was kind of sad because it could have been interesting to keep. But the point of it was, at one point it's like, do you think I could be the, the Mashiach? You know, I said, look, you know, we're really looking for, like the Jewish people are waiting for a certain type of person who's going to be the Mashiach. He's like, oh, what kind of person? What kind of person? So, you know, somebody who like really studies the Torah, but also studies oral Torah, that knows Judaism so deeply, you know, really studies it in depth. And so, you know, why don't you go and just study Spend your life Torah for some years, you know, and then, you know, if you still feel like this is your calling, you, know, you can come back and we'll talk. And he's like, really? Okay, okay. And I never saw him again. Saw him again. But like, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that maybe that's the idea. If somebody who reached that level is already not going to be, uh, not going to be interested in being a cult leader. Well, because maybe that guy, when he started studying the Torah, I don't know what happened to him. He started studying the Torah. He became enamored with the Torah and he just abandoned all of his crazy ideas about being the Mashiach. And right now, he's probably in B'nai Brak in Ekola. Married in 
Yeah, 100%. Because, you know, this is a... Uh, it's, this is like what Hillel did to, in the story of Hillel and Shammai. And Hillel said, uh, when, when a goy comes and says, I want to be the Kohen Gadol. And he said, uh, oh, well, you know, you, you, he said, convert me. I want to be the uh, Convert me so I can become the Kohen Gadol. And Shammai, of course, says, get out of here. But Hillel says, no problem. But how can a Kohen Gadol, how can be a Kohen Gadol without learning all the procedures of being a Kohen, all the laws of the Torah, you have to learn it in order to be able to become Kohen Gadol. You can't just be Kohen. You can't be the chief Kohen. You didn't learn anything. So he said, okay, what do I learn? He says, teaches him, you know, all of the, uh, starts teaching him. And then one day he comes across the Pasuk that says, anybody who's not a Kohen who comes close, you know, he's going to die. I mean, if a Jew who's born a Jew cannot be, go in and serve as a Kohen, then obviously I can't serve as a Kohen. So he, he realized that, you know, he couldn't really be, and yet he still stayed a Jew. And it, the end of the story is that the three converts got together and said, you know, thank God for Hillel, because he was the one who brought us Tachat Kampesh Chinah. And I remember when I was a kid, my, the rabbi of my shul said, you see from this, that even the parts of the Torah that we find not so interesting, Super-purpose. like about the Big Day Kihuna and about the, whatever he was teaching about the Korbanot, it, it could be taught with such depth that he saw the depth and the beauty of the Torah and he, he didn't care anymore if he could be the Kohen Gadol. He just wanted to, he just wanted to, to be a Jew. Right? So, there you go. Yep. It could work. All right. It's a strategy. You can be a Kohen hmm? strategy. Yeah. It's, a, it's good. It, you buy some time and then meanwhile, maybe the person will learn. You never know. Could be. Uh, okay. Like the story of Ben Pazi and the Zohar that everyone, I've probably told a thousand times. You don't know the Ben Pazi story? You must know that. It's like the best story in the Zohar that I know, which is a very limited number. Um, the story, the story, this, what? The, sto- the story of Rabbi Abba that, uh, what, what is that? No, I said like, oh, I barely know what you're in the Zohar. I'm like, oh, just the entire thing. No, definitely not. Definitely not. No. Rabbi Ben Chaim would just say, Rabbi Ben Chaim would say, uh, Google the, this one word. It only appears in two places in the Zohar. Yeah, You'll be able, I'm like, that, so Ben, ben Pazi. So the story is that this person was, um, that Rabbi Abba, who was like a very prominent figure in the Zohar, he appears a lot in the Zohar. So he, he was, he, he had a, his yeshiva and he was looking for students and he said you know it says he, he announced and he went and announced uh, uh, right, famous pasuk so in, in the right hand of the Torah is, is long life and in the left hand is meaning you'll make a lot of money if you study Torah and this guy was walking by and he said wow that sounds amazing I'm going to sign up because I want to make a lot of money so he starts learning in the yeshiva, learning, and like every week he's nudging like Rabbi Abba, you know, what's the story with the money that she said I'm going to get because I haven't got any money yet. And he keeps asking him. Meanwhile, he's learning and learning and learning, but he keeps asking for the money. And weeks go by, months go by, there's no money, but meanwhile this guy's becoming a big Tamil Chacham and he's still waiting for a paycheck and it's not coming. And one day this big donor comes to the, to the yeshiva and he gives this extremely expensive goblet, golden cup, whatever, to the Rosh Hashiva. And the Rosh Hashiva knows I know exactly. He says, give this to whoever you want or use the value of it for whatever you want for the learning. Rabbi Abba says, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to give it to this guy who's been waiting forever for like any payday for all of his learning. Right? And of course, the, the student is like thrilled. The now Tamil Chacham student is thrilled to finally have some, some return on his, on, on his investment. So he keeps learning and, uh, even more, more intensely, more intensely. 
And uh, one day, Rabbi Abba comes in early in the morning into the yeshiva, opens the door, and he sees this avrech, or whatever, this tamil chacham, crying. And he's like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Is it because there's not enough money? You, you need more money? What, what are you crying? You, you haven't gotten money? He said, no, no. I realized what a fool I was. Because all this time, I was learning Torah in, in order to get the money. But now I realize that Torah is worth way much more than the money. So much more than the money. What, what, I, I, was, I was seeking the wrong thing. I was seeking the money instead of the Torah. When really the Torah is worth so much more. And he's like, now I regret. I, regret, I feel like a fool that I, I, I was doing it for the money. When really I should have been doing it for the Torah. And he donated the cup to you know, the poor. And he, uh, he didn't want the money anymore. And he wanted to learn Torah Lishma. And that's why it was called Ben Pazi. It's like the backstory of his name. Because Paz is gold. You know, he... It's a, it's, a, it's a cute story. I like that story a lot. I probably told the story at least 50 times. At least. I like that story. I tell it to every class I ever like, have a, an ongoing. I can't believe I never told it. I actually just told it to the boys here on Saturday night. I was telling it to them on the side. Such a good story. Um, it just expresses a true value. Once you come to, you, you might get into to offer for ulterior motives like Shiloh Lishma, but it, it really has an ability to turn you on Lishma if, you, if you're learning it genuinely. If you're just learning it mechanically, you might never see depth that's going to attract you, but if you learn it in depth, it, it, it ends up uh, drawing you in a different direction. Okay, so, I saw in a vision, Oh, we know that place. Okay. Asher be'elama Medina. That was the that was the name of the country or the state. He was on a stream. The stream Ulai doesn't mean maybe. It just means that's the name of it. There was a ram. There, there was a ram with horns. There were there were tall horns like high. One was longer than the other. And when he saw it come up, he like saw them protrude. Like the first, first the short one came out. So it wasn't a unicorn. It was a head too. And the other, and then, and, and then a second one. Uh, I saw this ram like uh, go- goring in every direction. West and north and south. And all of the animals couldn't stand before Ben And it did what it wanted, and it became arrogant. Now, the interesting thing is that I just thought of this: that it's interesting that he he, pers- he always personifies these kingdoms as animals, yeah. right? That. Yeah, that's very interesting. He always uses animals, which is like has a very deep truth to it, because it's like this animal drive of like pow- power grabbing and goring and 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 feasting and all of this. Stuff that's associated with these empires of the indulgence and the decadence and the you know the the, the desire for uh, ego egotistical gratification and whatever else like it's animalistic he's he's and and he and he portrays the Jewish side as the kadishe elyon like malachim you know that's not exactly true of it it's not it's not talking about like ordinary. Obviously, there are Jews who also are materialistic and seeking all the things. But the idea is that in his vision, he's portraying what is at the core. What's the, what makes the nation tick? What makes what drives the nation is an animalistic uh, is its animalistic nature, desire for power, wealth, gratification of various sorts, and you know, hopefully, what causes the Jewish people, what drives Jewish people, is supposed to be holier, the holy purpose, right? The service of God, which is what a malach is. 
ואני הייתי מבין, and I began to understand, והנה צפיר העיזים בא מן המערב על פני כל הארץ, the goat, a goat came from the west upon all the earth, ואין נוגע בארץ, but it wasn't touching the ground, it was flying, it was like, that could either mean it was moving really fast, or it could mean it was literally flying, but צפיר קרן חזות בין, אבל it had one very noticeable horn, okay? ויבוא עד האייל בעל הקרניים, It came to the, uh, to the uh, ram that had the two horns. Asher ha'iti, omed ifnei ha'uval. Vayarot elav b'chamad kocho. It charged at, the, so this new uh, creature, this goat, charges at the ram. It rams the ram, actually. Or itiv magia etzel ha'ayil. Vayit marmar elav, they had like a bitter struggle. It broke both of the... So the goat breaks the horns of the ram. It rams the ram really good. And so now the ram can't stand up anymore. And it, it throw, casts it to the ground, tramples it. There was nobody to save the ram from the hands of the goat. And now... This goat becomes very arrogant, and there's nothing worse than an arrogant goat. And, uh, and in its strength, what that means, I don't know. means in it, in its oh, at the at the highest point of its might, I guess, right? In its in its moment of greatness, the the big Karen was broken. חזות ארבע תחתיה, and four, uh, uh, four horns came out instead of, the two, instead of the one that pointed to the four uh, directions. מן אחד מהן יצא קרן אחת מצעירה, and from one of those came a small extra horn. ותגדל יתר אל הנגב ואל המזרח ואל הצבי, and it pointed, it extended out towards the south and the east and ארץ ישראל, צבי צבי היא לכל הארץ הזאת אומרת ישראל. ותגדל עד צבא השמיים, it reached up to the host of heaven, ותפל ארצה מן הצבא ומן הכוכבים ותרמסים, and it knocked down from the heavenly host, and from the stars, and it trampled them. ועצר הצבא הגדיל, and it reached up to the שר הצבא, to the commander of the heavenly army, וממנו הורם התמיד. And from him he brought down, he cast down the תמיד, והושלך מכון מקדשו. And was thrown down the Beit Hamikdash. V'tzavat tenaten al tamid b'fasha. Now, this exact meaning of this pasuk is not clear, but something to the effect of <coughs> either it means that his people, meaning this bad king, made a a tamid a, a tamid offering that was sinful. Okay, or it's referring to the fact that they stopped the tamid that was good. Because of the sins of the Jewish people, they lost the zechut of having the tamid, korban tamid in that time. That tashlech emet arza, and truth was thrown to the ground, va'asta ve'itzlicha. And it did, and it succeeded. Okay? So the, um, uh, okay, one second. So what does that mean, va'asta ve'itzlicha? What's it talking about now? Oh, that it came back? Or that it's talking about from before? What does he say? Nobody explains those words. In the end, it, I guess it must mean. 
say what it means? Asta vetecha. I heard one holy being speak. And another angel said to that angel, he's overhearing conversations of angels. Okay. How long will there be this vision of the Tamid and this Pesha Shomem and this desolating, destru- destructive t- uh, sin? Tet Vekodesh Vitzava Mirmas. The holiness and the host will be. Uh, oh, that the uh, that the uh, I guess the holiness and the, um, the meaning the mikdash and the heavens and all these things will be crushed under under the, underneath this bad uh, bad king, whoever it is. Until an evening and a morning, two thousand three hundred. Vinitzdak kodesh. Only then will the uh, will the holy be justified. So if you do calculations of these numbers, it becomes interesting. But let's, let's do that for a second. So when I, Daniel, saw this vision, I sought understanding. I saw like a person standing in front of me. And I, saw, I heard the voice of a person between, coming from between the river. And he called out and said, Gabriel. Like the angels are talking to each other. Uh, explain to this guy the vision. This is happening in the vision. Okay? He came to where I was standing. I was like taken aback. And I fell on my face. And he said to me, Understand human. This is talking about the end. This vision is about the end. Oh, he was like a rabbi. Everyone, he fell asleep during the speech. When he was speaking to me, I fell asleep. That's what he says. Right. He touched me. By he raised me up again. He said, "I'm going to tell you at the show. What's going to happen at the end of the anger? Because there is an end to the time." Tell them straight out what it is. Yeah. So That is Alexander the Great, according to everyone. Everyone agrees that's what it's talking about. Even though it doesn't mention him by name. All the Mufashim pretty much say, right? Even Rashi says, who Alexandrus Mokdon. And you know, everybody agrees that's who it is. Vanishberet, but Amodna Arbatachtea, Arbamachuyot, Migoya Modna, Velobachoho. That four kings will rise up after Alexander the Great, but not with his strength. And that's exactly what happened. After he died, there were four different potential successors, each of which tried to take a slice of the kingdom, and nobody was really able to. And they fought with each other for a long time. Why do we have a good history book of this time? Uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia has it. Um, what are they called? They're called like the, uh, something with a D. The kings of the, right after Alexander the Great. that took over after him. There's a name for them. And they had wars. Uh, hold on. I'll tell you. Diadochi. 
Right, the words of the Dayadochi. Is it? Yeah, I can put it in here, into the chat for you to see. It's uh, this was this is one good thing about having the computer here. You can yeah. do quick nifty things. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take a look at these uh, kings that came right after Alexander the Great, and uh, these conflicts that. Uh, yeah, and you can see that they were. There was a lot of intrigue between them and uh, fighting between them. And uh, basically, that, that's what the, the assumption is, that this is what is being described here. After the, uh, they, None of them had the power of Alexander the Great. He was the only person able to hold that empire together. They all fought. Um, at the end of their kingdom, when the sinners will be finished, Ya'amod melech azpanim omevin chitot. A king will rise up. Now, some people say that kehatema poshim means when the push, when the sins get really bad, meaning when the, when their decree is sealed, when that when things have gotten really bad, then there will be this very arrogant king who understands riddles. It doesn't mean he understands riddles as some talmid chacham. He's trying to say that he is a trickster and a and a a, a political somebody in the who's holding in political kind of tricks. He's going to like uh, achieve power, but not from his own power. Now, either that means, like the Mefarshim say, he's only going to achieve great power because of the sins of the Jewish people, or it means he's going to basically use manipulation. He's not really going to be worthy of the great influence that he has, but he's going to be able to get there. And he's going to destroy wondrous things and he's going to succeed and do. And he's going to destroy powerful things and the holy nation. And based on his, you know, intelligence, trickery is going to succeed in his hand. And in his heart he's going to become arrogant. Uh, meaning he's going to think of himself as great. And in serenity he's going to destroy many. And he's going to stand against the prince of princes, which means either the greatest angel or Hashem himself. Okay? And with no hand, he's going to be destroyed. When we remember Ephes Yad, it's similar to the rock that Nebuchadnezzar saw that was not made by any human hands, but was going to destroy the kingdom. Right? And the vision of the evening and the night that has been said is true. Now, seal up this vision because it's for a long time from now. I, Daniel, was feeling sick for days. What do you do when you are feeling down? Throw yourself into your work. Right? And I was like taken aback and distraught about the dream and I didn't understand. Now, in retrospect, again, the, most of the Mepharshim, the modern modern commentaries see again meaning nowadays those who are studying the Tanakh in the light of history like Dat Mikra and those who are using you know historical data that perhaps if you look in in some of these Mefarshim even here uh, like Perush Arid that I have here he says he says exactly what the commentaries say now meaning if you listen to the scholars religious scholars I'm not talking about academic I couldn't care about about them, talking about the people who are studying Torah for immense, not people who are studying because of artifact and they think that it was made up and it's whatever. Yeah. Talking about real, real chachamim, even here, Perush he says, Ze Antiochus, which is exactly what 
the, what, let's say, the Dat Mikra would probably say to I didn't look at Dat Mikra, but I'm saying I'm familiar with what, what is said about it. So, the, so Antiochus is, again, the assumption is that he's seeing to the times of the Chashmonaim. And he, this arrogant, so he's going from Alexander the Great, the sort of disillusion of the kingdom of Alexander the Great, and eventually from the Tzetzaim of Alexander the Great, basically from the Greek, from the Syrian Greek camp emerges Antiochus, who destroys the Beit HaMikdash, uh, is able to suppress truth, fights against God himself, but he's destroyed, not with a hand, meaning in a miraculous way, which is the story of, again, of Hanukkah. It's, it's an allusion, actually, to the story of the Maccabee and Hanukkah. So, and he's disturbed by this. We don't know why Daniel is disturbed by this. We don't, we don't know yet. Right, but it's clearly not happening anytime in, 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 in the near future. Right, no, it's saying terrible things are going to happen. But like, he's already in a situation where terrible things are happening. Right, how much... Right, so why is it disturbing him? Is what's disturbing him that he can't understand it? Is what's disturbing him because he, he doesn't understand why there can't be a better way for, for, for these things to play out? Is what's disturbing him that... Uh, uh, the fact that things have to get so much worse before they get better is what's disturbing him that it's just it's mysterious and he wish he could understand more and the fact that he doesn't fully understand it is bothering him because he feels that there's too many unanswered questions even after the malach told him uh, the uh, you know told him the meaning he's still not satisfied is, you know is that what it is mm-hmm. we don't know um, the the numbers in the parak of the two thousand you see there's a gigantic Rashi on here wow that's a long Rashi. He's doing all of his calculations. What is 2,300 evenings and mornings? How many days is that? So let's say 2,300 evenings and mornings. Half of that would be each day, right? So 2,300 divided by two. Oh, is it divided by two? It sounds like it's evenings and mornings. That's 1150. <coughs> Right? And then if we divide that by 365, you get just over three years, which again is what we said before was the amount of time that Antiochus' decrees against the Jews during the period of the oppression in Eretz Israel was just around three and a quarter or three and a half years. So that's that idea that there's going to be a particularly bad time. I think when I read the Hanukkah story, I never realized it lasted that long. And when you, when you hear the story of Hanukkah, you don't realize it was like three yeah. and a half years that they, were in, that they were being oppressed before they finally stood up and fought back. But the fact that he was able to throw truth to the ground, like, I'm not sure what was bothering Daniel, but that definitely seems disturbing. Like, you're basically describing that it's part of the plan, that there's going to be somebody who destroys the Beit HaMikdash, throws truth to the ground, that is able to succeed using trickery and... Uh, you know, and political intrigue to further his own uh, to further his own agenda against God. He's literally going to defeat God for all intents and purposes uh, in his attempt to grab power. And from that, eventually, he'll fall, and great things will happen. So it's similar. It's similar to the previous vision, right? What's the difference between? Are oh, you getting a phone call on the, on the recording? Also, got stopped. I think. Yeah. No, no, it didn't pause. So in the, uh, it, it's similar to the previous vision because the previous vision also showed this idea of the 
Greek kingdom leading to an Antiochus who's going to oppress the Jews. What's missing from this, uh, what's missing from the, uh, uh, from the, the second vision is it doesn't talk about the precedent kingdoms. It doesn't talk about the uh, Babylonians. It doesn't talk about the Persians and all of that. It zeroes in really on the, uh, no, I mean, it does talk about the Persians, but it doesn't talk about the Babylonians that he's per- currently in. It just talks about the kingdom of Persia and its downfall. It doesn't start with Babylonia, which might be the reason why it's not written in Aramaic, because up till now, we were talking about Babylonia. So there was at least a connection back to, uh, you know, his Babylonian setting. This vision doesn't even deal with Babylonia at all. Babylonia is already assumed to be gone. Which again, also, by the way, makes sense in the historical context. Because the third year of Belshazzar, little does he know it, is going to be his last. Mm-hmm. Right? Meaning the kingdom of Babel is almost out of the picture. For all intents and purposes. The Persians and the, and the Medians are coming. So now, even before the writing is on the wall, mm-hmm. literally, figuratively, <laughs> right? Daniel is already focused on the next step. What's going to happen next? And, uh, and so he's just looking now. It's like almost like the lens moved like to the next frame and he only sees the, Babel, the Persians and the, uh, and the, and the uh, Greeks. And then the last vision is really only going to be, really the last long vision that he has zeroes in only on the details of what happens during the Greek times. And again, most of the Mepharshim of today that are using historical uh, data and evidence, and some of the traditional Mepharshim that had it also, some of the later traditional Mepharshim that also had a better knowledge of the Greek period, also interpret it that way. It's gonna, it only extends, again, to the period of the Chashmonaim, but he's going to see even more detail, but detail that's like zoomed in during the times of the Chashmonaim. During the period, the Hellenistic period, basically. Right. And, and all that happened culminating in the Hashmonim again. Now, the, 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 the interesting thing from our perspective is, number one, in how his visions become progressively more zoomed in, more detailed. This is what happens when you zoom in on something, you see more detail about the particular slice that you're taking out of the rest. So yeah, so when you, we have so much more experience with zooming in now because, we, because of our technology, but as you move, as, as he moves forward and his focus becomes more narrow, because let's say now uh, Babylonia is about to fall, so there's no point in talking about that anymore. We're already moving to the next part, so there's more to say, let's say in terms of the details of filling out the details of those two <coughs> chapters that are coming up. And then once you get rid of chapter two, which is about Paras and Madai, and you're focusing really almost exclusively on the third chapter of the Greeks. So then you get a ton of detail about the Greeks. So as his mind is moving from uh, chapter to chapter and he wants to understand more, and we're going to see that he mentions actually explicitly that I was studying the books of the Nivu'ah, of Yirmiyahu. I wanted to understand how it's playing out. Why hasn't the Geulah happened yet? Why haven't we seen, you know, what he promised us that we're going to back, go back to Eretz Israel? And his mind is constantly on this. He's trying to comprehend and obviously it's a little bit discouraging that it's not happening in his time. That goes without saying. But I'm sure it's also discouraging to see that even what is going to happen is not going to be exactly what he was hoping it would look like. Right. And as far as he can see, if we assume that he only sees to the end of the period of the Hashemonim, that looks like the Messianic era from the perspective of, uh, of Daniel. Right. 
Right, but in any... And why? Why is that the mistake? Meaning because that's where it's saying the Kaddishay Elyon are going to prevail. Because then they're going to have their own land and then they're going to have... And their own kingdom. And they're going to be governing their own land. And they're going to have a Beit HaMikdash, presumably, and the truth is going to prevail. Right, so he sees that. Just like Yishayahu originally saw, Chizkiyahu is the end of the... is the final uh, station. So what's, what's interesting is that it gives us a perspective on how opportunity is cyclical. When there's... When there's their opportunity, when there is uh, tumult and instability, it's an opportunity also for good things to take the opportunity to to push on you know on the things that really count and the things that are really valuable and not to settle. Like when Moshe Dayan decided to hand the keys of Harabayit over to our cousins instead of keeping them. But by doing so, he made the kotel. Uh, that's true. <laughs> we have to thank. We should. Th- we should go to Moshe Dayan's We should go. Moshe Dayan's kever and personally thank thank him for giving us the culture. But that that's really what that, right. That's another example though. Think of what possibly good could have what could have happened at that moment that didn't happen. During a time of instability, craziness, there was battle going on, there was conflict going on, and a lot of different outcomes are possible when before the dust settles in any situation like that. You know, and what can be seen and it's just I think from Daniel you see that in each of these periods there was tremendous unrest it, and there was a uh, it was actually at the most the craziest of times that actually opened up the opportunity for uh, you know for, for something really great to happen and in a way that's kind of uh, un- unsettling because you don't really want the craziest of times to happen yeah but it's a lesson for the future that a person realizes that at times it might seem like the worst. I think it was Ram Emanuel that said, you know, every crisis is an opportunity or whatever it was that he said. But there's a lot of truth to that. And the more, yeah. Oh, is that what he said? And, and the more chaotic the crisis, the more possibilities that there are. Because chaos means that a lot of things are unsettled. A lot of things are open. A lot of things are up for grabs. The more chaos you have, the more possibilities really there are. And that's what you see from these new books. But I think there's a... Yeah. Yeah. It could be, but he says he's disturbed by it, so he threw himself into his work. He's like, I'm just going to look at the immediate future right now. Right. I'm not going to be thinking about the far future, because it's... It, we don't know what really is going through his mind when he's, having, when he's reflecting on these dreams, what he's really trying to get out of it. It's talking about the far future. Right? It's not talking about something that he's likely to see in his lifetime, and he must have realized that. I assume... I so it's talking about kids, you know, it's talking about the end of the the end of prophecies, the end of all the prophecies. Because based on his visions, it sounds like there was a possibility for the period of the Hashemonaim to be the end of all the prophecies. Because that's what it's saying could have been. It actually puts a spin on Hanukkah that's very interesting. I mean, it is that idea is there in Hanukkah. We just don't usually talk about it in the context of Hanukkah. But the fact that when the Hashemonaim sees the Beit HaMikdash back and Re-established Jewish autonomy, they had the opportunity to create Malchut Beit David again, and they did not. They had the opportunity to focus on being becoming the Am Kadosh again, and they did not. They ended up descending into corruption. So it is pretty sad when you think about. It. Just like at the end of the Purim story, there's also that moment of uh, the moment where it seems like, wow, maybe the Jews are going to realize they've been saved by God, and they're going to go back to and they're going to go back to Israel because this is an opportunity where. Things are very right. They have the ability to do anything, and they just sink right back into life in the Persian Empire. 
and the Megillah ends talking about the tax policy of Achashverosh again, which is basically every conversation about Aliyah among Americans. You know, they're like, "Oh my God, I would love to move. It would be great. We'd do this, that, and the other thing." And then one second later, it's back to talking about what life in America. Shift right back. And you know, the first two times we came here on the trip, I would talk about this all the time too. But I was also talking to myself. Yeah, but now, uh, now things have changed, so I can, uh, I don't have to feel guilty when I say it now. Um, Love those singers. But this is, I think this, these nibbles are, are when you understand them, and I, I'm actually really grateful that uh, you picked this book to do, even though it's hard, because uh, I didn't really. When we go through it quite more methodically and like step by step, and you're able to digest each chapter, it's so much clearer. Like I never had in my mind. The progression as clearly as I see it now. And these books are not meant to be learned once. We're learning at one time. We're getting the roadmap. We're understanding the basics. We're getting fundamentals. Every time you look at one of these books, you're going to see new things, like the fact that, the, that all these malchuyot are portrayed as animals. I think that's a really interesting point. It's like the animal in humanity that drives so much of politics, so much of conflict and warfare. And it's the kiddushah that needs to rise up and, and, and needs to be elevated. And a lot of times that happens either not necessarily, despi- not because we want a war because we're stronger than them, but because their wars and their conflicts create a chaotic situation or a, create a, actually a, a sort of an unstable situation that allows a different vision of life to... Uh, Look at what happened in, even in Mitzrayim. If you look at really what happened in Mitzrayim, it was the creation of total instability in the infrastructure of Egypt as a result of the Makot that led to the Jews being able to leave. And that's just, that's meaning they didn't, a lot of them, according to the Midrash, only a fifth left. The rest of them stayed. Okay, and even though that's clearly must be an exaggeration based on the numbers, but, the, but still, the idea that instability and chaos invite new new opportunity, the possibility of, you know, starting starting anew. Very deep idea. Very true idea. And it's, a, it's an idea about geulah, really. That if we wait passively, it won't happen. You have to seize the opportunity and follow through with the opportunity for the geulah, really, to reach its, uh, to reach that. Mm-hmm. But what, what is it that he, what is it that's bothering Daniel so much in each of these visions? It's hard to know. It's hard to know if it's like bothering him emotionally, bothering him because he feels like there's more to it that he's not grasping or he doesn't fully understand. We have the benefit of hindsight is twenty twenty. We literally saw these events already happen. We know exactly what he's talking about. He has no idea what he's... He has, doesn't know what he's really seeing or describing. But I'm not so sure that those details would bother him so much. I feel like it's more that the process is such a uh, disturbing kind of process. Such a violent or, or uh, you know, uncivilized process to lead to such a holy uh, outcome, to such a great outcome, is disturbing as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it comes with a lot of pain and suffering along the way too. We know it's, I think that's one of the things that Israel, where we are right now, is not only, you know, not only owes its existence basically to the Holocaust to a great, great extent, but also to all the people who died in horrible wars, people trying to kill us, uh, that you know, we're still, that we, the fact that we go into the Robai Yehudi is because of wars that we won right. and people died. So, you know, out of 
a lot of the holiest and, and, and greatest, uh, greatest achievements come at a serious cost. And that's, that's very disturbing to think of. Yeah. That it basically almost has to happen like that. that. Like, right, it's like, it seems like it has to happen like that, but it's very upsetting. Maybe because, you know, the, the attachment to human power is so firm and so uh, unshakable that it resists any kind of a fundamental change. And it's only when it's loosened because there's conflict that it allows a different vision to, to you know, to assert itself. <laughs> yeah. Like what happened in, uh, with Paro? What happened with, you know, the, 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 as long as he's in a position of absolute control, considering another possibility for, uh, of recognizing Hashem is not even, not even not yeah. And there are a lot of people like that in their life too. They won't consider it. That when do they become religious, or when do they start thinking of a different path in life? Only when things are falling apart. When they're when they're at the bottom of the uh, when they've hit the bottom of the barrel, that's when they that's when they start to reconsider. Yeah. Brooklyn did get a little better. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go to sleep. I have a really bad day. Oh, from the fact. Let's. We did. Uh, we did.